Today we'll be discussing how to improve the medical care of trans persons and non-binary persons with Dr. Laura Stratton and Dr. Karis Massarella. This is Doctor vs. Comedian. I'm Dr. Asadoja, and this is the Doctor of Laughs. Not a real doctor. Ali Hassan. Every episode, what we normally do is I pick a topic for Ali from comedy and entertainment, and I question him about it. Then Ali picks a topic for medicine and health and grills me on that topic. But today is a special episode. In this episode, we'll be discussing how to improve the medical care of trans and non-binary persons. Yes, and pardon the interruption, the second interruption, if anybody's counting. Mm -hmm. But uh, I will say this, Asif, and, and to our listeners, last episode, we interviewed Bilal Baig from the television show, sort of. And I just did something called ADR, which is audio dubbing, where where we get to sort of any lines where, you know, it was too windy or the microphone was scratching or something. You go and sort of audio dub over your line. So I went to do that for the second season of sort of, and I got to sort of watch the show, the second season for the first time, just clips of it. Bilal is so good. I don't know what to tell the camera loves this person and they're going to be a huge star and i think uh you you owe it to yourself to to uh watch the show if you haven't listened to that interview and i think also it is a great intro for us you know this area of of um trans people and transgenderism it's an area that's it's it's a little bit you know tricky for some people uh, explosive for others and i think I like what we're doing here. I like the fact that we are exploring this area with experts who tell us exactly how to approach people who are trans. And you know what? You approach them like human beings. Mm -hmm. That's 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 the bottom line. I don't want to spoil it. <laughs> that's not a spoiler. But I, I think it's it's very good. And I think I will I will put myself in that category as well. That I don't want to say the wrong thing, and I'm worried about that. At the end of the day, it just boils down to you know we're all human beings. And I think these are very valuable episodes, and we had to split them up, right? Bilal is enough of a huge like star in the making that they deserve their own episode. And, and, and so does the show sort of, I think it deserved that given how, how pioneering it is to have a show with a Pakistani Muslim lead. I mean, you know, we owe it to, we, we talk about diversity enough on this show that we should have that. And then I think both these doctors were so um, enlightening with, with the information that they were given and they they both do incredible work. Yeah, I agree. Ellen. I think what we're trying to do is emphasize that this is an important topic. And I think people are like, well, I don't know too much about it. Yeah, exactly. That's why we want to do this. And especially for the physicians who, who listen to our show. A lot of them may be well-versed in, in trans care and the care of uh, non-binary persons, but you might not be. And so that's the whole point of this. So we're going to start off with our special guest, Dr. Laura Stratton, who's going to discuss how to improve medical care of trans persons and non-binary persons. And then we'll have an interview with Dr. Karis Massarella. Uh, Dr. Masserell is a world-renowned expert on the medical care of trans persons and is prominently featured in two documentaries on Amazon Prime's Out TV channel. So let's get started with our first guest, Dr. Stratton. Let's do that. So our guest today is Dr. Laura Stratton. 
She completed her medical school training at the University of Toronto Mississauga, her family medicine residency at Women's College Hospital in Toronto, and after her medical, uh, her family medicine training, she pursued an enhanced skills program at the University of Toronto in LGBTQ plus health. Welcome to the show, Dr. Stratton. Oh, thanks so much for having me, and thanks for that wonderful introduction. Well, uh, we believe it's all factual. Yes. I did not jazz it up in any way. It's really down the line. I'm not trying to make you to be anything you are not, and that's partly because what you are doing is pretty impressive to us to begin with. So we don't have to, we don't have to put any extra masala in this. We wanted to start by asking you how you got involved with the care of trans persons and non-binary persons to begin with. Yeah, so um, I mean, I uh, identify as a queer cis female, um, but part of the like the broader 2S LGBTQ uh, community. And I think from my my own experiences and experiences from from friends, um, just seeing how um, sadly awful care can be sometimes, um, uh, that really kind of drew me into to getting into that care and trying to do uh, things a bit better and kind of improve the care of the, this population. Um, and then going through through medical school and residency also just seeing uh, how limited uh, uh, the education was uh, in this population. So I think for, for me, I didn't graduate all that long ago, but at, at U of T in med school, we had, I think, really just like a half day in like LGBTQ health, which really doesn't do the, the population justice and doesn't really cover a whole, whole lot. Um, and so um, kind of through some of those experiences uh, and just seeing what we can do as family doctors and, and provide care um, to, to trans and gender diverse populations, um that's kind of what what drew me to it can i ask you a follow-up question there you talk about care the state of care being particularly awful uh awful at worst and limited at best that seems like the sort of uh range there and i can i ask you about some examples or 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 how that manifests itself uh, practically speaking bad or awful or negligent care for trans people yeah, I think unfortunately, it's like a lot of trans and gender diverse patients or people just don't even go to see see their doctor. Mm-hmm. I think just not having that kind of uh, kind of welcoming environment, um, kind of experiences of like transphobia in the past, um, and, and so they just don't even go to to the doctor or go to the hospital just because of previous negative care or um, expecting that that they're going to be be judged or kind of things are going to be focused on just them being being trans and not their their broken ankle or whatever it is they're going to, to access care for. So I think the sad reality is that a lot of people just uh, have that fear of accessing care um, as kind of one, one example. Um, others where like people or uh, doctors just not believing patients. So trying to having to convince uh, your doctor that that you are trans and not having to go through a bunch of uh, interrogating questions to, to prove your, your transness um, and prove that, uh, that you're deserving of, of care. Um, so I think those are very kind of common unfortunate examples that that come up quite frequently and you had mentioned that you're involved with the family medicine residents incorporating uh lgbtq plus care into the curriculum 
what what do you think should be done to educate Dodgers? Let's maybe start with that level, with the you know uh, Ali. We talk about different levels of 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 education. So there's undergraduate medical education, which is medical school. Then there's postgraduate with his residence, and then there's continuing medical education, which is kind of once you're out in practice. So when we're talking about that group, which is kind of the family medicine residents you know what what should be done to educate those individuals other than time i get spending more time in the curriculum but but how do you kind of approach that with, with those uh with that, that group yeah so, i mean i i should preface this by saying that things are getting better so mm -hmm. i think there's been a lot of changes since i've even gone through where there is more education that's happening at both at the undergrad and postgrad level and more kind of opportunities and in, in continuing and continuing education um but a combination of things so not just like a simple like lecture although i do do that myself quite a bit too in terms of just kind of didactic lectures, just getting some of that information across. So I think that's one kind of basic uh, component to, to education, but then also just having like clinical hands-on experience. So um, working with like staff and, and preceptors, seeing patients who are, are gender diverse, um, just uh, kind of having that kind of direct uh, experience. And then uh, with most things kind of integrating that that education so not just having like your dedicated half day in like 2s lgbtq mm -hmm. health but also kind of having a broad spectrum of examples and other areas of care um and so not having um kind of like your stereotypic examples of just like hiv just being an lgbtq kind of health issue having like trans women as an example and like diabetes or something right. that's like totally like not related to just like LGBTQ health, but recognizing that, yeah, these people also have other medical conditions and you're going to see them in clinic, regardless of if you're a family doctor, if you're a specialist, a surgeon, any physician is going to see patients who are trans and gender diverse. Um, and so having those like diverse examples, um, uh, I think is a, a kind of way to integrate that into to your education, just so you know that those are people that you're going to see in, yeah. in yeah, and and you know it, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, I'm doing. We've talked about unconscious bias in medicine on the podcast. I'm doing a talk next week for our hospital about unconscious bias as well. And it makes me think. You know, if someone comes in and they happen to be trans, that may have nothing. In fact, it often has nothing actually to do with their medical problem. You still have to obviously show respect to them as an individual, obviously, but don't always lump everything into that, you know, and having those examples of, you know, again, you have a person uh, as a case uh, who happens to be trans, but they're coming in, as you said, with something else. So is there like a, like a committee or something to uh, look at this in the curriculum to ensure that they're being you know gender diverse and things and things like that with, with you know these levels of education yeah um i mean so i can't really speak for like u of t in in general but uh, i do know that there's like for undergrad education there is like a health lead in and 2s lgbtq health and so i do think that they're looking at the whole curriculum um and integrating that within what the the medical students are learning now uh, postgrad, um, again, it's so different from, from school to, to school. Um, and so I think that's, uh, uh, that is so variable, even within U of T, for example, um, there's so many different residency sites and I think it's so variable. And so for myself working at women's college hospital, um, I am providing, um, kind of uh, some basic education in terms of 2S LGBTQ health. Uh, but I think the, the reality is, is so, um, variable from from schools from residency mm -hmm. programs um, and so I think the the exposure that students are getting is uh, not 
necessarily standardized. Um, and so I think there's yeah a lot of work to be done in terms of the education piece, but um, it is starting to slowly improve, I think. I can't help but think, Asif and I, we talk about this, having a Muslim background, a lot of my personal, you know, not mandate, that might be too strong, but, you know, through my comedy even, just normalizing and humanizing uh, um, um, the Muslim community, uh, you know, compared to what you see or what you think or preconceived notions. That's been like a, you know, always a, a through line, let's say, if not like my job, it's been a through line in everything I've done. And I feel like I can't help but think it's the same thing with trans people. Like the more trans people you see, oh, hey, they're just like, like at some point you want to get to the point where like, oh, you're from Manitoba? I've never met somebody from Manitoba. And it's the exact same thing with a trans person or almost, it's just, we're all human beings at the end of the day. I can't, I, it, it seems so basic at its core to sort of humanize a human being. And it seems like, why would that take work at all? And yet this is, this is where we are. I wanted to talk about the clinic that you work with, Connect Clinic in, in Toronto. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so uh, Connect Clinic is this uh, virtual clinic that provides trans and gender diverse care to, to people across the province. Um, and so uh, the clinic's been around for, for a little while now, and it was originally started by another physician, Dr. Kate uh, Greenaway, who was just doing it on, on her own, really. Uh, and then now we've expanded. We have a number of physicians working at, at Connect Clinic, um, and it's really just to increase access to care. Uh, so we see people, a lot of people within the greater Toronto area, but also a lot of people up, up in Northern Ontario where they don't have access to primary care in general, let mm. alone trans care. And so um, it's a way just to increase access to basic trans care. Well, that kind of uh, segues into the, the, the next thing we want to talk about, uh, which is this website from uh, the Rainbow Health Alliance that you're involved with, uh, which is really a trans health guide. And that's how, well, that's what I was kind of like, uh, you know, as we uh, talked about Dr. Stratton, you and I offline, uh, we had Bilal Beg uh, on the show and they were talking about sort of and, and, and their show and we wanted to do an episode of trans care. So I was kind of looking things up and then I, I stumbled upon this, uh, this guide and I just thought it was excellent. You know, there's, there's, it's well laid out on a website and I know you were uh, contributed to the, to the website. So maybe just tell our, our listeners a bit about the website website and, and your involvement with it? Yeah, so I mean, my involvement was actually pretty small. It was mostly just updating some of the content during my enhanced skills. Um, so I cannot take much credit at all for the website, but it is actually a really uh, useful and, and practical resource. Uh, and so it had originally started through Sherborne Health, which is connected with Rainbow Health Ontario. Uh, and they had initially some internal guides, uh, clinical guides, just in terms of sort of basics in terms of trans health. And then I think continued to be updated uh, uh, kind of through through time uh, and kind of grown in terms of their, their guide. And so the Sherborne Health guides are, I think, like the go to in terms of trans health um, across Canada and probably even more broadly, I would think as well. And um, and then this this guy, this PDF guy was then put into a, a website format to make mm -hmm. it a little bit more user friendly, uh, more accessible. 
Uh, and, and so it's, uh, I pull it up actually all the time. So I pull it up together with patients, um, even though it's meant for healthcare providers, I find some of the, the tools on there are helpful to go through, through together to look at, okay, what can hormones do? What can't they do? What are the timelines? What are things that you're, uh, expected to, to see in terms of effects? Uh, and so it's helpful, not just for, for healthcare providers, but for patients, for the kind of broader community and, um, yeah, it's great. So where do you start when uh, you have, say, a practicing family doctor or a resident who's about to go into practice and they're really uh, like clueless, like where, where to start? Like they're, they're you know, uh, and, and not resistant, but just like I, they come to you and they're like, yeah, I really don't know where to even start with this. Like it's, 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 a, it's a bit of a black box. So where, where do you start with that in terms of, uh, of the very basics of education? Because the whole goal is right, we want to imp improve, uh, you know, care for medical care for, for trans persons and non-binary persons. Where do you, where do you start with those people who are like, I know nothing? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I mean, I guess like starting at super basics is like, what is trans what is that the kind of definition what does being transgender mean um and so recognizing that uh yeah in kind of society we like to kind of group people into male female but we know within medicine within biology there's a lot more diversity uh than just kind of this binary um and so recognizing or kind of going through some of the basic terminology. So trans meaning that anyone whose gender identity or gender expression is different than the sex that was assigned at birth. Um, and so for, for most people, you have a baby that's born, you look at really just the genitalia and you say you're male or female, and then you kind of go on your way and you're expected to follow that pathway of uh, if you have a penis, then you follow all things that are kind of related to boys, you're, you're male and you're expected to kind of follow along that, that path. Um, and same with being, being female. Um, but uh, for a few people who are, are trans, they their kind of internal, so inside kind of identity is different than what was assigned at, at birth. Um, and uh, it can mean a lot of different things to different people. So we have people who want, who are maybe trans masculine, who want kind of all of the masculinizing effects or trans women who want to have like that full other opposite end of the spectrum in terms of full feminizing effects. But there's also a huge range in between this, this non-binary uh, umbrella. Uh, in there as well. And so um, there's quite this diversity within how people can, can identify. And then I think with, with terminology too, people can also feel quite overwhelmed. Like, how am I supposed mm -hmm. to know all of these terms? It's constantly mm -hmm. changing. It's so confusing. Uh, and I think with like with language, where it's constantly evolving and I think it's impossible to know all the different terms. Um, and so if a patient comes in who identifies a certain way and tells you identify as like, queer or genderqueer or some other term that you maybe never heard of before, just asking patients, like, what do you mean by that term? Or what does that mean term mean to you? Because uh, it can mean different things to different people. So I think just asking patients how, how they identify and kind of what that means to them instead of just making assumptions or not having them have that opportunity to explain what, what their, their identity is. So I think it can sometimes seem overly complicated, but it's, um, I think just asking questions of patients as well can also be a, uh, uh, a helpful ways. We've heard a lot about the urgency of trans care. I wanted to ask you about that. What specifically makes it an urgent situation? Is it the backlog? Is it the idea that, um, yeah, that th these people have been deprived of care for so long? Is it a mental health issue? I just wanted to dive into that a little bit. Yeah, I think a combo of things. Again, like it's just uh, kind of finding access to, to providers, people waiting for, for 
years to, to kind of access care. Um, and, and there is a big um, kind of mental health component that can go with it as well. So again, if you're not able to live how you identify, um, constantly being misgendered, um, not kind of able to live like your authentic self, uh, there are sadly higher like suicide rates, suicidal ideation. Um, if you're constantly yeah, facing discrimination and um, again, can't live how, how you want to live, that's distressing and can cause um, uh, other kind of negative mental health impacts. Um, and so um, that is certainly kind of a, a point as to, the, to that urgency in terms of providing trans care to, to uh, kind of decrease that suicide rate, decrease or kind of improve mental health. Um, we know when people have access to, to trans uh, care that, that those suicide rates significantly drop. Um, and so this is a kind of an easy intervention to kind of help people um, kind of live how, how they identify and kind of significantly improve mental health. A couple uh, last uh, kind of final questions. Are there overall medical needs uh, other than what we've talked about uh, that should be paid a t particular attention to in the in the trans and non-binary community uh, things that maybe people aren't thinking about yeah i think one thing that certainly comes up a lot is preventative care um and so again, I think people think it'd be very complicated, like what kind of um, cancer screenings would I need to do? Mm -hmm. And uh, and it's not really that different. Um, I think we're looking at like, what are what's the anatomy that's there? What organs are, are, are present? So instead of necessarily thinking of like, what's male cancer screening, what's female cancer screening, actually looking at it more from an organ perspective. So if you have a cervix, then yeah, you should have cervical cancer screening. And so that wouldn't be any different for, for a trans male. Um, so someone who is presenting masculine and male, if they have a cervix and they're sexually active, they still need cervical cancer screening. Um, or for, for uh, trans women, mm -hmm. if they've been on hormones, they have breast development, they would also need breast cancer screening. Okay. Um, and so looking at cancer screening from the perspective of like, what is your uh, anatomy? What organs do you have present? What kind of screening would, would you need? Um, and um, having a way to kind of track that instead of using some of the sex designations on, on OHIP where we use in our electronic medical records, if you're just using like the female sort of gender marker to screen people that need certain cancer screenings, then you're going to be missing your, mm -hmm. your trans who have changed their, their um, uh, gender markers or sex designation on OHIP. Um, so kind of yeah, coming from a, an organ-based cancer screening. As you mentioned OHIP, I'm realizing the scope of what your work, like what's left to be done is is pretty massive, I imagine, because there's systemic things in place that need to change. I'm just thinking about even the, the DSM-5, we mentioned enough mm -hmm. that people who are non-medical people would call it, you know, diagnostic. The Bible for doctors would also have quite outdated material, I guess. So you have quite a bit of work ahead of you. Yeah, well, I mean, with a lot of things in medicine, we're constantly obviously changing and evolving and learning. But yeah, I think there's a lot of systemic things like, yeah, you think of the electronic medical record, how you're kind of interacting with that that data on your computer with, with patients, like having uh, to use that OHIP data that's there. So kind of the gender markers, um, using kind of like, name, like having to dead name patients. You don't have a way to yeah. kind of put what their preferred name is or have it clear for, for other staff. Um, you're kind of having to navigate 
navigate within this sort of restrictive sort of medical record system. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, there's lots of things that kind of, as you're doing this care, you realize oh, all these barriers that, that come up or if patients are constantly yeah, being misgendered within healthcare too, and kind of dead named, it's uh, uh, hard to sometimes go in and access care when you're constantly having to, to correct people. Yeah. And, and just, uh, it's funny, you, uh, Ali, you and Dr. Stratner mentioned this, this happened to me the other day, like I had a, uh, a patient and they had their old dead name on the label because on the computer, I got the correct name, you know, but I need a label to do the blood work for whatever blood work I was right. doing is the old name. And then I called them by the, I mean, it was so embarrassing. And, you know, it, it, it's these things like the computer, our, our system, OHIP, our billing, our, um, our EMR, which we, we talked about EMRs on the podcast before, they're just not up to date. So as you're saying, Ali, it seems that there is still like some work to do in this in, in this category so i'm gonna uh, kind of wrap things up by asking you like a super basic question dr stratton and and i think this is um so if i have someone who is trans non-binary and i'm not sure about their pronouns your pronouns are on the the uh connect clinic website so that's how we we knew what, what yours were but uh, how do you it seems like the most basic question but how do you kind of find out or, or know like what people want to be called? Yeah, that was an excellent question. And also like, I think a good also starting point too, uh, the, uh, in terms of just pronouns. Uh, so having a way, it depends on how you're first interacting with patients. So whether it's like an intake form, for example, um, having a, an option where people can put down pronouns is one kind of simple option. Or or when you're meeting someone for the first time, you can when you're introducing yourself, like I usually say, I'm Dr. Stratton, my first name's Laura, I use she, her pronouns. Uh, what name do you prefer that I use? And what pronouns do you use? So having patients have that opportunity to share share theirs and, and normalizing sharing horm, um, pronouns. So when you're introducing, including your, your pronouns and whether that's like verbally saying them or having them on like I have a little pin on my lanyard that has she her on it um uh, just different ways where you can have patients have that that opportunity to to share theirs um and then kind of along those lines if you get it wrong which happens like we are all human we all make mistakes we all tend to make assumptions and uh get things wrong um then just correct yourself, make that change, make it clear on like the EMR if you can, um, and just kind of move on. Don't make this big sort of production about it. Like, oh my goodness, like, I'm so, so sorry. Then you're kind of shifting that attention from that the patient in front mm -hmm. of you to, to yourself. Um, and uh, so instead of just making it like, uh, not as big of a deal, just uh, say, oh, I'm so sorry. Like, uh, I will, uh, I will, and then make that correction and then move on. And same if you got someone's name wrong, you just make that correction and uh, try not to make that same mistake over and over and over again, because then you're not making that that change, but um, uh, making every effort to to fix that that error. That's ama amazing advice. That, that, that was excellent. And, mm -hmm. and really, those are such easy, practical tips uh, that I think all of our, we have a lot of physician listeners. I think that those are perfect. My... Um... My exposure to the trans world has been in the comedy world, friends I've made who are comedians. So I'm always like, am I getting the right information? Or is this like, uh, are these, you know, my friends who are just sort of joking around, but it feels like it was a great foundation 
for me to be again it's just it's just a normal thing you know i have a friend deanne smith who non-binary she has i can't remember how the jokes go but she says people are struggling with she her him they hey listen we say words like crantini you know what i mean like don't worry but we we we've we've done enough weird things with words that i'm sure you could replace a he with a they it's really not the you know anyway that she was one of the great um sort of introducers of this 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 world to me and i think not all people have that we have to remember that so you know it's 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 on those people to sort of work a little bit to understand what is happening in the trans world and i think your your website actually rainbowhealthontario.ca is a great resource even if you're not a medical person there's you know right on the first page i'm not sure i understand trans health issues you just click on that and you get a very good idea of of that sort of human element right there's a patient who comes in they have medical care or they have trans related care and as we said from the beginning don't forget that somebody could just have a knee pain because they're a human being with a knee pain and if they have trans issues then there are these you know basic things ways to break it up in this flow chart I, I thought that's also illustrative even to somebody who's you know familiar with that world to some degree as I am so I think that's a great uh, a, a, a great place to wrap it up I'll you know a Deanne Smith joke is often a great place to to, to put a, a button on something. Uh, thank you, Dr. Stratton. We appreciate you spending some time with us, and uh, I, I have absolutely no doubt that this will be useful and illuminating to, uh, to many listeners. Yeah, well, again, thanks so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Well, that was a nice chat. Did you learn something, Austin? Oh, definitely. I mean, I really appreciated just some of those basic tips that she had. They seem like... I I felt a bit dumb asking those questions, like the very simple ways of how to introduce yourself, how to ask about pronouns, but I thought her... uh, her answers were just so enlightening to me. So I think that was great. And it's a good uh, stepping stone to our next interview. I think so too. And this chat is, uh, I I think people will really enjoy it. We're talking to somebody who is trans and uh, they have been sort of, they have devoted their life to, to bettering the medical care of trans persons. And and I think it's, uh, it's a really interesting chat and they're a super interesting person, which is why they are featured in not one, but two documentaries on uh, on Amazon Prime. Yeah. Okay. Let's go to our interview with Dr. Karis Massarella. So we're very happy today to be joined by Dr. Karis Massarella. Karis is, and I, people will be like, Dr. Massarella Ali. Karis herself asked me to call her Karis. She's a lead physician at the Transgender Care Clinic Quest Community Health Center in St. Catharines, Ontario. She's an emergency physician at St. Joseph's Healthcare in Hamilton, Ontario. She's a world-renowned expert on the medical care of trans persons. She's appeared in the McLean's 2021 Power List named by Huffington Post as one of the world's top 50 transgender icons and appears in two series on Amazon's on Amazon Prime's Out TV channel My Trans Journey which is uh quite the tearjerker at least it was for me yesterday when I was watching it and translating beauty uh welcome to our podcast 
Karis. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate uh, being here and hopefully we can have a good chat today. Well, I want to start off, Karis, on our podcast, when we do interviews, we often talk about people's origin stories. So would you be able to tell us a bit about yourself and what drew you to medicine uh, as a field of study and practice? Sure. So I was certainly exposed to medicine my whole life because my father is also a physician. He's retired now, but he was a physician. So you know, this was back- some things in the water at the Massarella family because your your child is now in medicine as well at Western. Is that what you're uh, she's saying? She's in the undergraduate med sci program. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, right. Okay, so you yeah. can't, you just can't quit medicine. It's in the bones. In the bones, absolutely. So yeah, so basically, I grew up around physicians, and of course, this was back in the the old days when physicians would have parties and they might knock back a scotch and soda, and they get called in and they go see patients. But again, with a caveat. We don't do that anymore, but that was uh, back in the seventies and eighties. So I grew up uh, around medicine and I also loved history. History was my other sort of big passion in life, but I always figured that I could do history as a hobby. Uh, Apologies to all the historians out there. And uh, I could also, um, but I probably couldn't do medicine as a hobby because generally the public frowns on that type of thing. And so uh, I decided to do medicine and uh, was fortunate enough to go to Western Med School back in, I graduated in 1990 and um, sort of kicked around for a few years. I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I did know that I had an incredibly short attention span. So Emergency medicine seemed to be the perfect fit for physicians who probably have undiagnosed ADHD. So, um, you know, I like the, the the width and breadth of emergency medicine. And I was just actually saying to one of my residents last evening when I was working that what I like always attracted me to emergency medicine is I never wanted to be that doctor who was afraid of sick people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I always wanted to be somebody, no matter how sick you were, I would be, you know, that person who could walk in that room, take control of it. And, you know, if, within my abilities, you know, make that person hopefully better. So that's sort of how I ended up in Emerge. And I've been doing it now for 25 years uh, as a staff physician. Uh, just recently was 25 years. And uh, sometimes I wonder why, but I'm sure you've all read in the newspaper. Well, newspapers, oh my God, I'm dating myself. <laughs> as you've read online or on maybe on digital streaming platforms that, you know, things are a bit... Mm-hmm. Um, tense right now in emergency departments in this province. There's a bit of an inspirational uh, story inside there too, that somebody with undiagnosed ADHD uh, can just casually hop into the medicine field and yeah. sort of, uh, you know, make that their life and, and become um, a, a trailblazer within it. So that's wonderful to hear about, I'm sure for a lot of people. And I did want to ask a little bit about Emerge. You started off in emergency medicine. You still practice in the ER. Mm-hmm. Uh from a, from a trans perspective, was it in the ER that you saw those inequities um, that you speak about in your various work regarding medical care of trans persons? It's, it's a good question. I mean, I think historically there has been um, a negative experience for trans people with the medical community in general. So being trans, you know, historically has been pathologized in a sense that the idea of even having a transgender identity is a pathology, right? And of course, I always argue that nobody's identity is an illness. It's just your identity. And so I think, you know, from my perspective um, over the years, you could sort of see that antagonism and sort of, you know, having it within yourself, experiencing gender dysphoria and, and you know, hearing all the quips and the negative comments. Uh, it's, it, I mean, you know, I think, again, 
you try your best not to let it get to you. You try your best not to uh, be affected by it. But at the end of the day, it does affect you somewhat. So you'd, you'd see trans people come into the emergency department and often, you know, people would make comments that maybe weren't the kindest. And But, you know, that wasn't the only group of people that suffered that uh, experience back in the day. And so um, to me, I always thought, you know, with, you know, my Spider-Man quote, with power comes great, it comes great responsibility, mm-hmm. right? And so sort of, you know, feeling that as a physician, I could probably uh, at least, if nothing else, you know, have trans people at least access good quality health care. And that's sort of always been my goal. It's not like people often label me as a trans activist, but I don't think I'm really an activist because I don't, you know, I, I, I'm not an activist, I think, in that sense. What I am more is somebody who advocates for access to high quality healthcare for trans people for two reasons. One, because of the historical treatment of hands of trans people, which I think was, if you ask some of the trans people who have had that experience, uh, it was pretty negative. And then uh, secondly, um, you know, people think that, you know, trans people, if they weren't offered medical care, they couldn't access hormones. Well, nothing could be further from the truth, right? I mean, you can order the birth control pill online. You can order estrogen online. That's not a problem. Uh, in terms of testosterone, even though it's a Schedule One drug, if you go to any any weightlifting, uh, you know, gym <laughs> right. where people are like bulked up like crazy, right. you can get testosterone there in a heartbeat. And you know, so the idea that you that you wouldn't be able to access hormones, of course, is is, is a bit ludicrous. And so, what I want to do, and my ultimate goal, is to ensure that when a trans person, first of all, comes into the office and comes out, or maybe the first person they come up to is their physician, that they're not, you know, that they're at least there's some basic understanding of transgender healthcare. And then secondly, if they if they do choose to access transgender healthcare, that they at least access, you know, high quality care that provides them with, uh, you know, a safe uh, and uh, hopefully the best possible outcome. Mm-hmm. Sort of on a related note, uh, there's a TED Talk that you did, and I would just recommend that to all our listeners. It's a TED Talk. The subject is deception, but the, the hypocrisy... Uh, is something you talk about, and I thought it was very illuminating, um, and particularly for people who may not have a full appreciation for uh, not just the state of, uh, you know, medical care for trans people, but just the state of the world in general. I thought that was, it was a very good uh, talk, and I think uh, I would recommend that highly. Um, I wanted to ask, you know, the ER is a place where you would uh, find all kinds of people, and trans people would be there, and, and that makes sense to me. What was more curious was the city of St. Catharines, which I like. I was there a week ago. A lot of restaurants per capita. What made you choose St. Catharines for for, for, for Quest Community Healthcare, which, as I mentioned, is this uh, transgender care clinic? Well, I think like many things, it was serendipity in a sense. So uh, there was initial something called Rainbow Health Ontario, which the liberal provincial government uh, sort of founded or brought in around 2008. And so the very first Rainbow Health Ontario conference was held in Toronto, if I remember correctly, it was 2009. And so, again, uh, as you're probably aware, but Ontario was divided up into uh, Lynn's. Yeah, or right. And so Lynn 4 is like Hamilton and Niagara. You know, Burlington is basically Lynn 4. And so they assigned you by table. And so the, two of the people who were there... Uh, Jenny Strange, who was the program manager at Quest, and at the time, Amy Rookrack, who was the um, health promoter. Uh, Quest, uh, one of their mandates as a community health center was to uh, service LGBTQ uh, populations. So we just started talking, and then they asked me, would you be interested in doing like a trans clinic? And I said, yeah, 
sure because you know, as again asked you can say doctors have a very difficult time saying no yeah, so we just sure. mm-hmm. say, say yes to everything and so i said sure and they said well can you have your email and i said sure and of course i never expected to hear from them again to be honest with you because you you know you meet at conferences people mm-hmm. exchange emails numbers and then you really never talk again until you may, might see each other at the next conference mm-hmm. so but about i think about six months later i got an email from quest if I'm being too long-winded, please cut me off. Yeah. Um, but um, if, if I get an e- I got an email saying, do you want to come down and talk about this? So once again, I, I said, sure. And um, so I went to St. Catharines and um, I met with the, the program team there and they said, do you want to start a clinic? And I said, sure. So when Quest actually opened, uh, I just started doing it. I never advertised. I never uh, went out into the broader community, just, uh, you know, and so sort of by word of mouth through the trans community, people would start to come see me. And um, so now, you know, move forward 11, 12 years, uh, you know, we have several thousand patients that we've seen over the years. There's a team, myself, another uh, physician who's also an emergency physician, ironically, and a nurse practitioner. And, you know, we have social workers and therapists, uh, nurses who also participate in the team. And so we, we you know, we built something that I think has... Uh, has I think been helpful both to the local community and also to the province uh, uh, writ large because we see a lot of patients mm-hmm. outside our community. We, we we were talking about these specialized clinics. You talked about uh, your clinic, then there's some in Toronto and some that are that are kind of popping up. But if we take a step back to think about what the average physician, say the average primary care practitioner, what can they do? Maybe just even at, at the initial level or a basic level to show allyship and to improve the, the care of, of, of trans and non-binary persons? So I think you bring up a good point, right? I mean, when you talk about, you know, allyship and what does that look like? So if you look at your office as a whole, right, you can't look at yourself again as an individual because you could be the most, you know, positive, greatest ally of all time. You know, you've been to every pride parade since 1990. Uh, you know, you're like, you got, but if, somebody else in your office, like your receptionist or your nurse, or somebody has a negative comment or misgenders somebody, then that experience in a sense can be ruined. So it doesn't really matter how great you are. Uh, it really has to extend to the whole institution in a sense, and even to writ large like hospitals, right? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, even more so in hospitals because they're huge institutions with thousands of employees. And so when you look at, at, at that, I think as a primary care provider, nurse practitioner, physician assistant, physician, nurse, what have you, um, the best thing you can do is, first of all, just practice kindness and empathy, understanding that that person coming out to you, that's a huge thing. You may, first of all, be the first person they ever came out to. Or secondly, you know, you're their physician who they trust and or primary care provider. At least they're hoping, if for nothing else, that you accept them for who they are. And so I think that's at least the first step. And I think then the second step is learning a little bit about trans health care. And one of the things I've taught over the last decade is that, you know, primary care of trans individuals is pretty straightforward. Because, you know, the vast majority of conditions have nothing to do with trans, being trans, right? I mean, the appendicitis doesn't matter if you're trans or cis, it's appendicitis. But when it comes to hormone care, uh, you know, all physicians already practice hormone care, right? They prescribe the birth control pill and uh, estrogen to postmenopausal women. Um, they prescribe testosterone to men. So people already do hormone health care. And there's really nothing specifically different about trans health care other than there are a little tweaks that you make, but it's it's not that that really, really that different. 
And what about the next step? Because, and, and that's a good point about uh, hormonal care. We, it's practiced all the time. So I don't know why your, your point is, why would you kind of put this in a separate category when it's not? Uh, that's fair. If there may be some hesitation about, okay, so I have a, a, a person uh, who is trans, who is, is interested in surgery, how do they, how would a family doctor say approach that? Like, would they need to be seen in a specialized clinic like, like yours before being referred on? Would they just do it? I think people are afraid of uh, what if I do the wrong thing or I making an inappropriate referral or it's too early in the process. Yeah. So I, I certainly uh, understand that and empathize with that. I mean, but I think when you think about surgery, I mean, shy of people who are under 18, most of, I mean, in Ontario, we really don't do surgery on anybody who's under the age of 18. Uh, it just doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. So er everyone who's having surgery is legally an adult, but obviously, you know, we don't start with surgery. We generally start with hormone care. And in our clinic, you know, much to some people's chagrin, we're a little bit more conservative. Like we take our time. We don't rush into it. We talk very carefully about what are the effects and side effects of hormones? What are the reversible and irreversible changes? And I mean, I always tell people, you know, live in your body for a while. Don't rush to surgery. And then when you're ready, obviously, you know, we're happy to help you access surgery. But I think, again, it's a question of getting to know your patient and taking the time to get to know them and not rushing into irreversible procedures. And so obviously for most people, it's, their, it's the right decision for them. But at the same time as physicians, like you don't want to act as a gatekeeper because I don't think that's appropriate. But at the same time, you do want to ensure that patients uh, sort of access whenever they're accessing anything, medication, procedures, any type of thing, any type of any type of medical intervention, that they're fully aware of what the potential risks and benefits of any intervention are. Um, the good news, I think, when you look overall at people who have transitioned, even today with a lot of the negative things that you might hear online and on the internet, most people don't regret the decision. Mm -hmm. um, they're actually quite quite happy to be themselves. Uh, most of the negative things about being transgender, are, as you can probably imagine, looking at reading the news and headlines, are just the reaction of people to the fact that you exist. And I think, you know, any community that experiences that, you know, there's, there's negative effects. So for the most part, though, we don't see our clients regretting their decisions. Uh, and even if they do, we'll support them in that decision as well. You raise a, an interesting thing here because you know, Asif's work is pediatric neurology. So often he's seeing children and their parents together, uh, if not, you know, always, but most of the time. What is that like for you? I want to know because Asif and I independently have uh, friends who have children who are trans. And, you know, one of them, my, my, my friend in particular had said, um, he was definitely concerned, yep. worried that it was just a phase. And I, I couldn't help but think there must be so many parents who think that, that this is just a phase my kid's going through. Like they were they were goth last year, yeah. uh, the year yeah. before they were something else than the year. So yeah. what if this is just a phase? And is it, how do you, uh, how do you uh, address things like that, parental concerns? Well, I think, you know, we, we're not a pediatric clinic. So, uh, but certainly um, when I look at, that I think it's actually reasonable for parents to feel that way. I don't think that parents should be shamed for feeling that way because of course, as a parent, I'm a parent, um, mm. you know, it was something that's that I would, I don't want to use the term dramatic, but something that that is, uh, but it's something that, 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 that presents that can have life altering or life changing effects. Then certainly as a parent, I think it is reasonable to be, uh, 
concerned um, to be a little bit skeptical um, to ensure, because we do want to make sure that regardless of your child's identity and who they are, that we are with the best of our ability doing the right thing for that child. So again, I think the emphasis when you're dealing with young children, again, is to take your time and not to rush into any dramatic decisions. But at the same time, I always say parents know their children best, not medical practitioners. Mm. You know, we see them on an intermittent basis. Right. We don't see them every day. And so parents just need to be honest with themselves and say, you know, is my child, when is my child, how is my child happy? You know, and you, you'll know that as a parent, right? I mean, I, I, I don't know if the rest of us, we're all parents here, but I think, you know, you certainly get to, you, you know, your children best, mm -hmm. right? And um, obviously there sometimes can be religious or cultural issues that may affect how you, you know, the lens that you see that. But I think at the end of the day, regardless of people, whether they're religious, not religious, what religious tradition or cultural tradition they come from, people love their children and they want the best for their children. And so I really respect that. And so I really encourage parents, people of any age, uh, to join us uh, in the office and see you know, what we do and how we talk to people. Because I think, again, evidence really shows that family support and family uh, and community support is the number one predictor of successful transition, not taking hormones, not having surgery. Mm. So... Um, from my perspective, um, I absolutely uh, respect parents um, and their concerns, and we, we work with them together and, and come up with the best solution for their child. Again, mm -hmm. remembering that the, the individual is autonomous and does have the right to access health care. Just, just uh, one thing I want to follow up on, just some questions that have come up. So I've, I've been doing some reading about this in preparation for, yeah. for our meeting today. One of the terms that comes up is gender dysphoria. Should that right. be used? Is that appropriate? I, I see it all the time. And is I just wondering what you were saying before about, you know, medicalizing it being a psychiatric diagnosis? Is that an appropriate term to use? Well, I think, you know, before, you know, it was referred to a gender identity disorder, yeah. right? So, which immediately implies pathologization, right? And when physicians, you know, when we see pathologization as if, you know, our goal is to either reverse that pathologization or treat it, right? And right. so, uh, you know, that's our goal. And so the idea of calling it a disorder, I think, helped pathologize the medical treatment of being trans. With respect to your, as I said before, I think identity is just identity. It's just how you identify. I mean, everybody can identify any way they want, right? I mean, we are all free to identify as we choose. Um, so when you talk about gender dysphoria, it's that sort of unique feeling that somebody has when their gender expression or their you know, secondary sexual development doesn't match how they feel or their own gender self. And it is the real feeling. It's hard to explain to somebody who's never experienced it. But I always use the argument, and uh, you guys are probably both old enough to appreciate this, but, um, and I probably should update my, uh, my, my, my metaphors because uh, <laughs> when I talk to a younger audience, they have no clue what I'm talking about. But um, I, you guys remember when you were kids and uh, you know, you'd go on a road trip with the family, you'd be in the car, you'd be listening on FM, maybe AM, depending on your car stereo. Mm -hmm. You'd be listening to like your favorite song of all time. You know, In my case, it was Nana 99 Look Balloons, Go Ahead and Judge. Um, but <laughs> that song is great. That song is great. <laughs> But, but regardless, and then, you you know, you're just kind of getting out of the range of the antenna and it's kind of got a garbled sound, but you still want to hear that song, but it's really garbled. And so that's the way I explain gender dysphoria. It's just this, you never get rid of that sensation that you're just a little bit off. 
and it's not like you're off in every aspect of your life, right? You're not. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are aspects of your life for most people that you can function quite well. You can become a doctor, you can become a lawyer, you can become a teacher, you know, you, I, you can become really anything. But in that one aspect of your life, it's never comfortable. And so to me, that's how I try and describe gender dysphoria to people who've never experienced it. And so I think ultimately what I would say is that the idea of gender dysphoria, I think, is real. Mm-hmm. I think it really is experienced by, by transgender people. Whether or not it belongs in a medical diagnosis, I guess, is a whole other issue. But at the end of the day, when we're treating somebody, we do need some type of diagnosis mm-hmm. to treat somebody. Mm-hmm. So from my perspective, gender dysphoria, I think, is probably the least uh, pathologizing of the terms that you can use. So I'm okay using it. One of the other things I want to ask you going along with that, I, again, from my reading, some people are saying, so some experts in in the care of trans persons are saying, oh, you know, there's there, we're over diagnosing gender dysphoria, and and there's too many cases, and we have to sort of scale back um, this. I, I, do you know what I'm getting at? I, I've seen this in in a couple of publications, and uh, mainly lay yeah. publications, not necessarily scientific. And I, right. I'm just, uh, is it just more awareness, and that's why we're seeing, and and people are more comfortable to to ex- express this dysphoria they may be feeling. I think it is an interesting question, right? I mean, because we have certainly seen a huge increase in people presenting to clinics in the last decade. Like we would have predicted, you know, 12 years ago that the majority of people who would present to clinics would be trans female or trans feminine, right? Mm -hmm. Which is male to female trans people. Mm -hmm. Because historically that was the majority of people presenting to gender clinics. But what we've seen in the last 10 years is slight really a significant reversal in that where now the majority of people around 60 to 40 65 to 35 are presenting as either transmasculine trans male or gender non-binary transmasculine which i think they're all in some ways their semantics like essentially are the same in a sense they're the same presentation but that is an interesting social and cultural phenomenon from a social cultural perspective and so you're i think there is it does behooves us again as medical professionals to look at it and mm-hmm. try and understand why that why that's why that's happened. And as you said, it may just be greater awareness, right? And so a lot of patients who come to me to see, they just never they felt that way their whole life, but they never had the language to to describe it, right? So, you know, if you're um, a young person now, you just click on TikTok, Snapchat, mm-hmm. YouTube, and you're, you're going to get thousands of hits and thousands of people. You know, I always like to say when I was a, a kid, like I felt like that, but you know, I would, uh, you know, we had to get up to change the television channel. I grew up in Sudbury, Ontario. We had two channels, CBC and CTV, right? And so I remember one day I was watching a documentary with my dad about Rene Richards, who was an ophthalmologist in New York City who transitioned back in the early 70s and actually briefly played women's professional tennis at that time. Right. And so I saw this person and I'm like, oh my God, I think that's how I feel, right? ironically a doctor as well, but uh, that's how I feel. And, but then at that time here, I'm in Sudbury, Ontario, I have two television channels and I have no internet. So as far as I'm aware, there's two people in the whole world. She's really famous. And I'm kind of like this little punk kid in Sudbury who has no clue what they're doing. So of course I went to like, I like to say the Google of the 1970s, which again was Encyclopedia Britannica. And Uh and I looked it up, right. I always tell young people, go in your parents' basement, you'll see these really dusty books. That's it. That's our Google. And I looked up in the term, of course, that time was transsexual. And it was like really, you know, pathologizing Mm -hmm. and negative. And Mm -hmm. it was a mental illness. These people are all crazy, basically. So I was like, well, I'm shutting that down. So, you know, obviously I still felt that way, but I wasn't going to tell anybody because I didn't Mm want to be in a mental institution. Right. So, which of course Mm -hmm. is where my nine-year-old mind went. And so I think it is a different world. And I think it does behoove us 
again, I think for anything in medicine, right? I mean, medicine, if you don't ask the question, you never, you don't get the answer. So I think we have to be honest. And if we find something that does change the way we think, then we should, we should change. Um, so I, I'm not afraid of asking questions. Um, I'm looking, I want to make the best answer and the best decision for my patients. And so ultimately, yeah, I think it's okay. It's okay to, to ask questions. It's, it doesn't make you a transphobic if you ask mm. questions. I did want to know this. Um, you're sort of, uh, you're painting this very interesting picture of, of your youth and, and also about historically who has come in, um, you know, presenting as what to transition to what. You have that interest in history. You have that interest in medicine. How did you get involved in this, uh, you know, this other part of your life, which is documentaries? So I think um, it sort of comes down to, I mean, I, again, I never approached anybody. I never asked anybody. Uh, people have only ever approached me. So I've never sought the spotlight, to be honest with you. I mean, I'm not saying I don't like it, but <laughs> I've never actually <laughs> sought the spotlight. Yeah. But I've always been a good public speaker. Even, you know, before I transitioned, I've always sort of been known for my speaking. Mm -hmm. So people will hear me speak and they're like, oh, you, you can articulate things, you know, in a way I think that allows people to better understand, uh, you know, who you are, you know, who this community is. And and why people may feel this way. And so I think, you know, from that perspective, I think that has attracted, um, you know, some filmmakers. And I've met just some filmmakers over the years. And ultimately we just, they decided they wanted to make a, a documentary or a docu-series. And, uh, you know, often even it just starts as me consulting for them. They might wanna ask me a few questions. And they're mm -hmm. like, well, would you mind being in front of the camera? And I'm like, yeah, of course. I'm happy to do that. <laughs> I'll never say no to that. Yeah. But you know, it's um, it it is interesting. You know, I just want to bring this up. I don't know how you guys. If you watch the documentary "Translating Beauty" on Amazon or TV, um, is the way the trans community has evolved over time. So back in the day, like people like myself, like you know, intellectuals. Um, well, I'm not calling myself an intellectual. I'm a physician, but you know, um, <laughs> authors. You know, we're all the trans icons, right? But now, if you fast forward ten years, there's no chance I would make that list, right? Mm -hmm. It's going to be like beautiful, you know, Instagram models. And it's funny how everything has sort of come back down to the idea of beauty, whether or not it's trends or cis or even drag queens. If you look at drag queens now, you know, even drag queens, you know, back in the day, they were, you know, there wasn't a parody, but it was sort of an uh, uber masculine take on feminine, fe on, on, on a woman, right? Mm -hmm. That's what drag queens were. But if you look at it now, a lot of those drag queens are gorgeous. Like they're beautiful. Mm -hmm. They're like, they're stunning. They're, you know, and so it's, it's everything seems to have come back to that idea that I, you know, that masculine ideal of feminine beauty. And so I just find it really interesting from a, so again, from a social cultural perspective to see how, again, things regardless, they end up in, in the same place. So um, I, I have a lot of thoughts about those type of things. So I think maybe that's why, you know, filmmakers are interested mm -hmm. in hearing my perspective. So I think um, one of the things that I think is important, again, uh, to be aware is that um, I always say this, right, you know, um, some of the idea that, you know, we're changing the definition of women by including trans females as part of the broader right. female community. And I, I would argue that most trans people, I mean, 99%, just like most of the public, we're not delusional, right? We recognize that we're not biologic women. Uh, this is our gender identity, gender expression. I think that overall, um, you don't need to change the names of women's clinics. You don't. You can still call a women's clinic a woman's clinic. Uh, you don't have to call it a person's clinic. You know, you don't have to use terms like personhood. I think you can still use terms like woman. You know, uh, female. Uh, they're all completely legitimate terms um, that 
there's nothing wrong. Uh, you know, absolutely that women are women and uh, trans women aren't looking to change that, at least for the most part, uh, just looking to be part of the community. And I, you know, I've never entered a space of women without being invited. Like I wouldn't, I don't make assumptions that I'm welcome. Mm -hmm. I've never had a problem that way. I've always been welcome. And most of my friends are cisgender straight women. So it's not like it's, it, it's been a big issue, but I think a lot of the times things get conflated. Mm -hmm. And so you have a certain element of the trans community that may have a different perspective from mine. I mean, I might get accused of being conservative or having you know, a very binary view of the world. But the way I think about it is that at the same time, you know, trans people, yes, you know, we require, I, I think we deserve to be accepted as part of the broader community. But at the same time, I think uh, women exist. Women uh, are women and that, uh, you know, as a community, we're just, we're looking at least to be a small part of the community, but at the same time, uh, re respecting and understanding that women's issues are still extremely important and need to be, and need to be uh, uh, focused upon and uh, respected. I don't know if that makes sense, but I, I don't know if you can see where I'm going with that. Oh, but. No, absolutely. No, absolutely. And I think it's it's something that comes up a lot. And it, it, I'm, I'm actually really glad you, you addressed it because I'm sure that's another question that people have. And it's been in the media so much uh, that I think it, it was it was great that you addressed it. It's just, of course, the media, you know, I mean, everything's about views and looks and likes. And so it's much easier to um, view a look or like somebody who is behaving in a manner that might not be considered, you know, mainstream than to listen to me talk about, you know, what I talk about, because it's, it's not as exciting, right? It's not as, um, I suppose, as visually interesting. So I really appreciate you guys giving me the opportunity to speak here today. So thank you. Our pleasure. Thank you for making time. And, and I'm, I'm happy we were able to find this time. I, 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 I'm happy to also uh, tell our listeners about your TED Talk and your, your documentaries. And, uh, you know, it, it, it does, I think, even for those who are like, confident in in what they think they know about trans people i think there's always something there we can always learn just like anybody you know people even in my comedy i'll say something and you'd be surprised how somebody goes oh you mentioned that muslims are supposed to pray five times a day we didn't know that and i was like you didn't know that i thought that was very common knowledge right but you get so like yeah. you think that what you know everybody knows and it's you're constantly surprised about like oh a lot of people didn't know that i forgot that there were people who don't know that somehow that that escaped them so i i'm always you know uh very happy to open my own mind and the minds of our listeners also to um to to to, to areas then i think that's what asif and i our focus is right like hey this is something that's going on uh let's highlight it for a bit you know this is a whatever it might be and sometimes it's kind of goofy and then sometimes it's pretty important and that was that was today you know but I would, I think, Ali, you bring up a really good, I think humor is a great way of um, making a point without feeling people like they're being lectured to. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. I, I do use humor a lot. Um, I'm trying to be more serious today, but um, I, I do use, I think humor is a great way of delivering a message in a way that, again, like doesn't feel that people are being lectured to. So I think folks like yourself, you know, representing, you know, the Muslim community or representing the broader people of color community, I think it's a great way to introduce people to concepts they may not mm -hmm. understand or they may have been you know, they, they see on the news or whatever streaming service they go to um, that I, th I just think it's a really effective way of delivering, uh, delivering a message. So I really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. No, our, uh, our pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time, Karis. We really appreciate it. This has been fun. You guys are great. I uh, recommend uh, talking to you anytime. Thank you. Thank you.
So that's our show for today. Let us know what you guys think. Again, we had uh, two experts on trans care giving some very practical and important tips and life lessons for everyone, not just physicians, but for everyone in terms of how to improve the medical care of this community. Uh, let us know what you thought. Reach out to us, drvcomedian at gmail.com. Also, let us know uh, what you thought on social media, drvcomedian on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We are everywhere. Reach out to a friend. Let them know how much you like this podcast. Five-star rating and review. Those are also very important to us. Ali, before we get out of here, what do you got going on? Your book has now been out. For a couple weeks. Book is out. Book is out. Is there bacon in heaven? If you have not picked it up, you can get it from every uh, self-respecting bookstore. You can get it online. And you can also get it uh, in the library. Although I'm very pleased and shocked to say there's a... There's a there's a hold. Oh, nice. There's many holds on yeah. the book. A, a bit of a waiting list. So I'm 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 excited to say that. Yeah. But but it's getting a great reception and every person who's read it and talked to me about it has a lot to ask about and a lot and, and, and feels quite entertained. So I'm I'm pretty happy with, with how that's all going. So pick up your uh, copy at fine booksellers everywhere. And the library. I mean, yeah, you can go on the waiting list, but do you really want to wait that long? Of course you don't. But remember that although I'm a doctor, as were the doctors we uh, spoke to today, Dr. Stratton and Dr. Massarella, we and I are not your doctor. Medical issues we talk about are for your interest and information only, and they're not medical advice. Please consult your medical professionals for actual medical advice. Thanks for listening. Bye.